Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com or download the Whole Foods Market app to learn more and find the store nearest to you. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and 3, our weekly food news roundup. Last month, Hurricane Florence walloped parts of North Carolina. According to the Weather Channel, it was the wettest tropical storm to ever hit the Tar Heel State. So how did the restaurant industry respond? Some helped FEMA weather the storm, while others got to work feeding people on the ground. We just walked in and said, we know how to cook, what can we do? They said, I need you guys to just cook 150 pork loins, and we were just like, uh, okay. (laughs) Now the attention needs to be on Florence's long-term effect on North Carolina's farming community. The general mood of farmers is one of certainly resilience and almost feels like it's the normal course of business to just get hit by a gigantic hurricane and need to just keep on going. So tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network, available wherever you listen to podcasts. I like the way you do. Whoa, the way you took it so slow. Hey, hey, you're listening to Ear Words on Heritage Radio Network, and I'm your host, Kathy Irway. So today we are talking about a product called Jell-O. And, you know, this is a food that we're all very familiar with, I would imagine. And it's not something I've ever thought too much about, written too much about. I bet it's not something we talk about too much on Heritage Radio Network and um, in many discussions about the new food movement or local food and so forth. But, you know, it is a part of our lives. And um, reading this book that I'm holding right now has brought back just a wave of nostalgia for all things Jell-O. And um, in fact, a few years ago, I was invited to a potluck where we were tasked with making vintage recipes. And I pulled up the most, what I thought was the most preposterous sounding recipe. And it was this towering, towering mold of Jell-O stacked in layers with things like salmon and (laughs) canned salmon, that is, and cucumber suspended in the clear lemon Jell-O and parsley, uh, parsley like suspended in another layer. And it was just the most crazy thing, but also it was just crazy as a feat of, of human (laughs) or edible accomplishment as a feat of, um, I, I felt quite accomplished having made it. So, um, you know, Jell-O is a part of our lives, and I'm really excited to be telling you about this book that I've, I've really been telling everyone about this book, I think, all summer and all fall. It is an amazing memoir. It is called Jell-O Girls, A Family History. The author is Allie Robottom, and she joins us, joins us on the phone right now. Hi, Allie. Hi, Kathy. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you so much for joining, and uh, congrats on your memoir. So, Thank you. Yeah, so... Allie, you are a PhD in creative writing. You've gotten a BA and MFA before that in writing. Your um, your fiction has, and also you know, nonfiction has garnered many prizes and um, been published in the Best American Essays series and Tin House and so forth. So um, you're an incredible writer, and I got goosebumps reading this book. Um, but 
I don't know if everyone who's an incredible writer also has such an incredible family story to write about. So this is, uh, this is quite a story. So tell me a little bit about your connection to Jell-O, or your family's for, connection. Sure. I mean, first of all, thank you. That's so kind. <laughs> um, and I do feel like, as a writer, very lucky to have this story. You know, I think people ask me why I chose to write this book. It's like my first book. And my answer is always like, how could I not? It's like it was yeah. right there in front of me asking to be written. Um, so my family's connection to Jell-O is a little bit tangential, but also, you know, definitely a vivid presence in especially my mother's life. Um, my great, great, great uncle by marriage bought the patent from its inventor, uh, in 1899 mm-hmm. and went on to make the company sort of what it is we think of when we think of Jell-O today. Um, it was sold in the 1920s to General Foods, which has since become Kraft. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will say, like, the Jell-O company originated in a small town in upstate New York called the Roy, where my mother's side of the family was from, mm-hmm. um, but has since moved to Dover, Delaware. So, you know, the connection is historical and uh, mythologized and in some ways distant. Um, but in my mother's life, it was quite a presence, um, not only through the money that she inherited, um, but also just sort of through the, the metaphor of Jello itself and the way it kept cropping up sort of <laughs> ironically in her life. Yeah. And so, okay, so your, I mean, your family inherited or they sold Jello to General foods for 67 million back in the 20s That's yeah so so you guys are jello heirs to this That's true yeah yeah there's um it, i will say like it's an interesting family and i think this happens a lot in every family not only families with a lot of wealth but mm-hmm. are in a lot of families um but there are many jello heirs out there it, it's sort of this like strange diffuse huh community (laughs) in as much as you know order who bought the patent had many children and they split off and fragmented so wow um there's a lot of people with jello stories out there which is also fascinating in and of itself yeah my mother's family um stayed very close to Leroy and was very connected to Edith Woodward who became the matriarch of the jello family so Mm -hmm. that's who we inherited our money from and um, sort of the Jello lore from as well, right? So your story, this book, um, actually, it sounds like it began with your mother's writing. Um, she was always documenting and writing about her family history, um, but it has to do with the women in your family. So you know, hence the title, Jello Girls. And uh, I, I think it's interesting. You you start out by saying that you know there's this known curse that um, people would talk <laughs> about the Jello curse. But um, the men in the family thought it was confined to the men. So, like, you know, money equals headache equals, you know, responsibility equals stock markets dropping. And then, you know, there was an uncle who um, was, uh, you know, affected by the Great Depression and um, jumped off like, like you know, many mm-hmm. men <laughs> of um, a building when the stock market crashed. So, uh, if if you don't mind, I would love to read, actually, a little bit from the introduction where you explain that. 
Um, you sure. wrote, yeah, great. Um, you write the curse. When my mother was a child, it was used to explain all manner of family misfortune, death, alcoholism, wealth, and the existential boredom it brought with it. It was, she was told, confined to men, and therefore nothing for her to worry about. All she had to do was stay cute, stay pretty, stay silent. Later, she understood these admonitions were the curse. The curse wasn't confined to men. It came from them, from the social structure predicated on their power. The curse was a silence impressed upon her, her mother before her, and countless women before them. The curse was the sickness that silence becomes when swallowed. Lumps of unspoken words ticking like bombs. So that's a really, really fascinating setup. And, um, you know, I don't want to give away all the things that happened to all the women in the book. And um, I guess I gave away that uncle's fate. <laughs> but <laughs> oh, Spoiler. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's really interesting because we do talk a lot about, you know, family curse and, mon- you know, the curse of money and the corruption of power and so forth. But this is a very different type of curse. And um, I think it's interesting that you weave in sort of the social history of our country along with your family history and how Jello is there along every step of the way with <laughs> women's roles. Um, so, t- okay, let's start off a little bit about talking about the origins of Jello. So, I didn't actually know that it was it went back so so long in Europe. People ate gelatin desserts. Sure, and I mean, in as much as like sort of connected to this idea of the curse is the curse of great wealth and privilege, which mm-hmm. I hope that my book sufficiently yeah. debunks. <laughs> uh-huh. um, Jello was originally very much uh, confined to nobility and to wealthy. People, particularly because it, it was so, I mean, it wasn't known as jello then, it was just gelatin. Right. And uh, it was so labor intensive, you know, it required hours of preparation from boiling bones and hides to skimming to, you know, just all of <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, this long process that um, fell to servants really to perform. And then not, not only that, but the, the molding of elaborate towers like the ones you made. So I think like it, Jell-O, the product was so revolutionary because it democratized this food item that had previously been confined to wealthy classes. Right. So the industrialized version of this in powder form, the unfiltered. Yeah. Got it. And not only that, but it then appealed to the sort of scientific sensibilities of certain periods of time in American history where, um, you know, convenience foods were privileged and, and the idea of a natural product was the idea of um, sort of a dirty product or something that we wouldn't want to ingest, whereas obviously now the pendulum is swinging and people yeah. are much more interested in right. whole and natural foods. <laughs> yeah, I think it's interesting how Jello was marketed throughout the ages of, um, you know, being easy for everyone to make. A child can make it. Um, mm-hmm. and you even write some anecdotes about how early Jell-O salesmen would go to Ellis Island and treat these immigrants right off the ship to a Jell-O um, in, in a mold and say like, hey, welcome to America. So, <laughs> even yeah, you can make I mean, it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, Jell-O was actually served on ships um, headed to America. And then mm. when immigrants 
uh, disembarked, they were given their own metal mold. And, like, you can Google it. It's kind of amazing. There's some really old uh, original metal molds that you can see online, um, the likes of which were handed to people as they got off boats and, and made their way into onto American soil. Yeah, it, it, that's fascinating. And, um, and, and you mentioned, you know, after, um, after uh, Second World War, you know, Jell-O was playing this important part, uh, important part role, sorry, in shaping our attitudes on food. Um, no pun intended. Actually, pun intended, because you write that, you know, it was often, it was common to see Jell-O shaped into a mold of like, oh, you write, it's like, it wasn't uncommon to see chicken or tuna just um, disguised by mayo, congealed with jello, then shaped into the specter of the animal from which it originated. So consumers didn't want the actual food. They wanted something that was somehow cleaner and, um, but not, you know, the animal itself. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I feel like we're still sort of in that moment, you know, in terms of like packaged meats, I suppose, but like this is just like a whole other level. It was, um, a simulation rather than a real, you know, a real mm-hmm. not food a fruit. item. And I think, yeah, yeah, right. It's certainly not um, a fruit. Um, it speaks a lot to where we were as a country at that particular point in time, which was that we were, um, you know, immersing ourselves in, in progress and technology and um, convenience. Mm-hmm. And before then, too, around the turn of the century, Jell-O's Jello was associated with salads. Somebody made the first sort of coleslaw suspended in Jello, and that really took off from from there. But I think it's interesting that you write that there's a correlation of women and salads. So women are dainty and and decorative, and so are salads. So it it became this sort of um, you know the production. You write the production of a salad too beautiful to eat was the epitome of success for modern domestic scientists and contributed to the notion that women's attitude or appetites were as dainty um, as the desserts and uh, the salads and desserts that they labored over. So it, there's this immediate like female realm when it came to Jello. Absolutely, and I think in terms of like specifically the the correlation between women and salads. <laughs> you know, sometimes it feels like it persists uh, today in some ways. Um, yeah. But I think, you know, it, it can really be traced back to that old Aristotelian idea of men being associated with sort of the rational mind and women being associated with the natural world and embodiment. And if salads are this food item that is like, at least, you know, a green salad is coming from the earth. It's its leaves, its foliage, um, I think, you know, that, that association is all the more pressing. But, you know, Jello was, Jello salads anyways, sort of were tasked with reining in and confining the fruits of the earth by literally molding them and con- encapsulating them. So right. it was almost this idea or metaphor for um, femininity reined in and controlled um, and being which, very ornate, too, right? Yes, yeah. yes, and decorative and um, pleasant and not challenging. I'm curious, why did the gel? It sounds like Jell-O really transformed salads throughout the early <laughs> 1900s <laughs> and mid-1900s in America. How did that fall out of favor? Uh, you know, 
I think that it was mostly had to do with sort of a push back towards more natural foods. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe, you know, I say in the book, like, in the 1960s, there was more of that sort of movement coming in and, and it continued into the 70s, not to mention the fact that women were beginning to, to um, you know, maybe leave their marriages and, and join the workforce more, and so they had less time right. to labor over elaborate salad molds, um, and Jell-O's marketing reflected that they were aware of this, this change, um, and they were sort of struggled for a bit and ultimately wound up focusing more on kids and on mm-hmm. um, diet food. Diet food, yeah. There's that um, short-lived, what was it called? Z- the sugar-free saccharin? Deserta. Deserta. D-Zerta, which was the diet, I guess, Jello. But you write about this interesting ad campaign, an unfortunate ad campaign in the 70s that tried to... Um, inspire women <laughs> to make Jello through various different characters. There was one woman who was like, "Oh, um, I made Jello because I bought this expensive fur coat." So here you go <laughs> to their wife or to the husband. Yeah, they're sort of um, cringe-inducing now. Uh, people can Google them and find them quite easily. But um, the shot, the images are shot as if. Uh, from the perspective of a man looking down on a woman and she's sort of gazing up at him guiltily with all manner of excuses as to what she's done wrong, right. such as backing the car out of the driveway inappropriate or incorrectly or buying a fur coat. Uh, and in one, she's actually asking to uh, get a job and go back to work. Ooh. Um, so she's offering him a jello as this sort of consolation prize as she asks permission <laughs> to leave the house and the sphere of the kitchen. Oh, my goodness. So those yeah, tanked. Those kind of tanked, yeah. though, right? <laughs> yeah, I hope so. I mean, it does seem so. At that point in time, Jello was sort of struggling to find its footing yeah. with its primary audience, which was women. And it's it's so interesting that um, it seems that um, your mo- your mother and your grandmother felt confined to their roles um, at the of the times. You know, to to just be pretty. You know, don't speak too much, and you know, just be this dainty ornate. Uh, wallflower essentially that um, you know some of these ornate jello molds it's it's too pretty literally to eat it seems so um, I, I think that it's amazing how you weave in the stories of and and the feelings and the t- uh, reflection of the times with your family history um, in this book and it made me wonder you know is marketing is this advertising you know a reflection of the values or does it help to really enforce them? The values of, you know, the roles of women at the time. Uh, I, you know, I kind of think the latter. Um, Well, I think both. Um, But I do think that, you know, advertising is always a reinforcement of what's going on culturally. And oftentimes that's detrimental to women. And I do think that, like, you know, it's, it's also just a reflection and it's a mirror, but in terms of affecting change, I do think that, like, advertising has some responsibility to um, to sort of lead the way and to, to create more positive imagery. Uh, do I think that, you know, companies will, from Jell-O to anything else, uh, will necessarily do that? No. <laughs> yeah. I think consumers have to demand it, but I do think that it, it is both a reflection Mm-hmm. And um, a reinforcement. It sounds like your mother was a bit of a feminist, though, 
and uh, she broke the mold, if you will. <laughs> um, that um, and, and your grandmother, it sounds like she would have liked to have not lived, you know, this life, this expected life of raising kids and, you know, being the perfect housewife and so forth. So um, I want to talk a lot more about those stories right after a quick little commercial break and, be, and we'll be right back. Sounds good. If I come into a party hitting reps like this, all your superficial rappers will cease to exist. If I come into a party hitting reps like this, all your superficial rappers will cease to exist. If I come into a party hitting reps like this, all your superficial rappers will cease to exist. If I come into a party hitting reps like this, Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market. From papayas and samosas to reishi mushrooms, if it's something that sounds delicious, chances are you'll find the freshest, best version of it at Whole Foods Market. They have more than 400 stores across the country, so if you consider pizza its own food group or just can't imagine when avocado toast wasn't a thing, Whole Foods Market has you covered. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com to find a store near you. Whole Foods Market. Whatever makes you whole. All right, we're back chatting more with Allie Robottom. She's the author of Jello Girls, A Family History, a harrowing memoir. And uh, Allie, you still there? I am. I can hear some music, however. Oh, okay. Um, let's turn that down. How's it now? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so we were just talking about um, the women throughout this book, the characters and your family story. And... Um, you know, tell me a little bit about your mom's journey because you open with um, very touching scenes where you're serving her Jello, ironically, as her last um, meals in, in the hospital. But um, her connection to Jello, she kind of tried to stay away from it a bit, didn't she? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think um, so. My mother grew up in Leroy, New York. She was born in Peru, mm -hmm. um, but grew up in Leroy, New York. Um, which was the birthplace of Jell-O and a town that was and still is very invested in that label and that identity. Um, and That's I think so she just felt very, yeah. yeah, she felt very stifled by it and very, for lack of a better word, silenced by the culture of the town. Um, and she saw that as connected to Jell-O, but also just connected to, um, the, uh, later she would see it as sort of connected to patriarchy and, and patriarchal culture. Mm-hmm. So she did a lot to get away from that. Um, you know, she struggled as a teenager. Her own mother died when she was just 14, mm -hmm. uh, and that was really hard for her. So she did everything she could, I think, to, to sort of remove herself from the place where her mother had fallen ill and also the place where she felt, my mother felt sort of like an outsider, like she felt different. She felt like she was an artist and a town yeah. that was not uh, supportive of that. And she did a lot to mm -hmm. get out and, and create a career for herself that was something other than what she had been raised to, to do. Yeah. And she, um, so she became an artist, but you write that she was always sort of a little bit reluctant to sort of own her, um, accomplishments, you know, to teach. Yeah. She would rather take classes than teach because she felt like, you know, she, because of her fortune, she didn't really have to work and she didn't have to prove that she could make it on her own through her work. So right. it was a bit of a curse in that sense. Yeah, I think that was one of the sort of 
biggest, I don't want to say regrets, but just sort of like challenges of her life was, um, you know, despite her, her ideals and her feminism to uh, own her accomplishments and her voice and to to value them the way that other people sort of yeah. encouraged her to. That's um, really I say sad. in the book that she just gave away her work uh, sort of compulsively and then felt bad for having done so, but she would have felt bad for having accepted money for it as well. Right. It was just the sort of endless cycle of feeling bad about herself for one reason or another. Yeah. And, you know, that's a, that's a type of curse that comes from the the wealth and, um, you know, that is shared by, it sounds like, maybe even the men in the family, um, you know. So, sure. But it's different all the same. So how do you feel, I'm curious, Allie, about uh, your Jello, I guess, family legacy and, <laughs> you know, writing about it today? And did you grow up eating it? <laughs> did you? How no, do you feel? Um, I grew up sort of, you know, removed from Jello in as much as, like, my mom really didn't make it. Um, it was sort of like a... I didn't understand really the oh. story of how, you know, our family's yeah. connection, though she would tell it to me. Um, so it really wasn't until much later in my life that I understood the connection fully mm. um, and sort of understood the financial connection. I will say that like having, you know, I've lost my mother and having inherited um, her slice of the jello pie, I will say that. Um, it really feels like it's much more connected to her, to me, than it does to Jello. Like, mm-hmm. I know she felt that the fortune was somehow um, connected to this, this Jello legacy, but for me, it's just connected to her. To her. So, Mary. Which is nice. Yeah. <laughs> I'm happy about that. <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs> um, so, your mother, um, Mary is her name, um, began writing and she wanted to tell her story. She wanted to finally speak up and, and, and really put this family history out there. Tell me about that. And how did you use her work in order to write this sure. book? So, um, my mom started a memoir uh, when I was about uh, six. Um, and it was following an experience that she had in which she um, spent several years getting ill, uh, sort of violently ill around her period every month and uh, not getting a diagnosis that was satisfying to her from the doctors that she consulted. And sort of the long short of it was after years of suffering and exploratory surgery uh, showed that she had um, a rare form of cancer and that it, you know, was progressing quite quickly. It was, uh, and needed to be cut out immediately lest she die. Um, and that experience I think really prompted her to want to tell her story, the story of her mother before her and just Mm -hmm. sort of the story of having been a woman in the world combating these forces that were sort of telling her to quiet down or that she was crazy uh, when she was voicing real concerns about any number of things. Right. Um, so she began that memoir, and it chronicled her childhood. It also chronicled uh, some years that she spent at the Austin Riggs Center, which is a psychiatric hospital in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, um, sort of during the 60s. And I think she originally envisioned the book to be sort of like um, a girl-interrupted mm-hmm. type memoir. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, it just no matter how many times she redrafted or rewrote or tried a different angle, the book just wasn't coming together. And, you know, eventually she passed it to me because she was becoming too sick 
um, to continue. And so I sort of took up the mantle and thought, mm, let me see if I can try my hand at this. Yeah. Uh, and that's, you know, I used her source material quite closely when I was first drafting the book. And, um, you know, then it, it became my own thing as well. Oh, that is wonderful. Do you think your mom would have been proud of the, the final result? Yes. That is is really great. And, um, you know, it sounds like a long labor of, 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 I want to say love, but it's also, you know, when you're describing um, the illnesses she, she suffered from, and um, the sort of denial of the actual medical reason, or, you know, or unknown reason at the time that people didn't know what it was, but um, there was that sense that, you know, women are too hysterical. Do you think that this happens, this is still recurring in, in medical science today with regards to women's diagnosis, diagnoses? Um, yeah, unfortunately, yes. Mm-hmm. I think there's more of sort of an understanding of the historical roots of that tendency, Um you know, to sort of tell women that they're crazy instead of taking them seriously. But I think it still happens. Yeah. Um, it's happened to me. I think a lot of women have stories like this. And um, I, I definitely think it still happens. Yeah. Um, you write this book at a time where um, we are experiencing a national sort of reckoning, if you will, or the Me Too movement. And I think it's even more ironic than ever that you know to a lot of people when they hear jello they think of bill cosby and yeah. i mean is that a curse uh, of jello he, always comes, <laughs> yeah, he fits in in this yeah. sort of weird and troubling especially now way um he's part of the history yeah and i, I didn't realize that he was like the longest running um celebrity and brand what do you call it contractual yeah, um, spokesman, yeah. Partnership, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's just wild. You, you can't pick a better sort of, <laughs> um, or worse, I should say. Um, yeah, it's especially troubling to go back and sort of look at the commercials now with sort of a fresh perspective. Um, they are quite ominous. Mm-hmm. What do you think, what do you hope this book will add in light of the Me Too movement Um and to add to the conversation of the Me Too movement, if any? You know, I think um, one of the imperatives of, you know, Me Too and and certainly of this book uh, is to speak, I suppose, and to, you know, to speak about um, one's trauma, whether it be, you know, specific to their gender or not. Um, I, I think that... You know, I I don't think that speaking is the only way to express one's trauma or to process it, but I do think that when it comes especially to women's experiences over time, um, sharing the story, sharing, you know, one's story and listening and bearing witness to others' stories as is sort of the the origin of the Me Too movement is Mm -hmm. um, a really good place to start, and I hope this book just sort of serves as a call to arms and and a reassurance that it's safe to do so. Yeah. And um, of course, you couldn't have, you know, when you're, I imagine when you started to write this book, you couldn't have imagined that the Me Too movement would have happened. So did it fuel, did it, I don't know, change the way you approached writing this book at all? Um, Well, I had finished by the time Me Too had Mm -hmm. started coming around. Um, 
I I do think though, like if you had told me while I was writing the book that Me Too would become a a thing, um, uh-huh. I would have. Um, I don't think I would have done anything different, different necessarily, but I do think that you know I would have said that it was you know only a matter of time, anyways. Like I I don't think that I wrote this book not expecting mm. some kind of yeah. um uprising at some point yeah yeah well it is a really powerful book regardless of the time that we are living in and I I just think it's so cool how you were able to tell so many different stories I mean we didn't even get to all of them there was this mysterious illness in Leroy that you start out with a a very (laughs) very very tantalizing um beginning um and and just so many sort of gripping aha moments throughout. So I, I really hope that everyone gets their hand on, on this wonderful book. And um, well, I guess that's about all the time we have right now. But thank you so much, Ali, for joining us. Thank you, Kathy. And, you know, thank you so much. Yeah. And um, anyone who's interested in food history, female history, feminine politics, and or just reading a really great memoir, hope you pick up this book. And um, thanks, everyone, at Heritage Radio Network. We'll see you next week on Eat Your Words. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.